The 16th President of the United States, unlike so many of his fellow 19th century White House occupants, has not been lost to history. Indeed, his name lives on as the capital of Nebraska, as a popular car brand, and as a name for one of America's two political parties. Beyond the United States, his legacy also has a powerful reach. Here in Scotland, there is a statue of him in Edinburgh, while in 2009, the Rwandan government saw fit to issue a stamp bearing his face. And that face, which he took great pleasure in mocking for its ugly features while he was alive, has been included at one time or another on the 1, the 5, the 10, the 20, the 100, and even the $500 bill. It is sculpted on Mount Rushmore along with Washington, Jefferson, and Theodore Roosevelt. And perched high upon a grand seat and surrounded by Greek columns in his most famous words, he gazes across the National Mall at the Congress of the United States, acting as a symbolic conscience of the nation. And I am, of course, talking about Abraham Lincoln. And today, on American History 2, we ask whether the so-called Great Emancipator deserves such a lofty and a widespread recognition. And we also examine the uses and abuses of Honest Abe's legacy since his assassination on Good Friday in 1865. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of American History 2, where today we're going to be looking at the life and legacy of Abraham Lincoln and his position in American memory. I'm Malcolm Craig and as per usual, I'm joined by my colleague Mark McClay. Hello Malcolm. Yes, uh, today we, we, we are going to discuss Lincoln, but first I actually wanted to bring up, bring up a point. I've been re-listening to a couple of our, old, our recent episodes just, you know, for quality assurance. And I've discovered that we have a, an annoying tendency to the, say both to say the word fascinating over and over and over again. So I've came up with some other words we can use, such as captivating, spellbinding, beguiling. There are many synonyms of it, so I think we should challenge ourselves not to use the word fascinating uh, for the rest of this podcast. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, back to Lincoln. And as I said in the last podcast, uh, we we have somewhat of a fan girl, um, but also a serious scholar. Uh, to join us to chat to this, and it's uh, Catherine Bateson returning um, from an episode you did on Irish Americans in the Civil War. Hello, Kat. Hello, Mark. Hello, Malcolm. Hello. I, uh, I take objection to fangle. It makes me sound like a nerd, but that's exactly what I am when it comes to Lincoln, so <laughs> an academic nerd. <laughs> so let's get fired right into this. Uh, so, Kat, uh, how much? I mean, how much do you think Abraham Lincoln's life live up to his legend? Because he's surrounded by all this kind of mythologizing that many of the kind of like the reputedly great presidents are surrounded by. Real splitter Lincoln, honest Abe, this just man who presided over this brutal internecine war, the great emancipator, someone who could charm his enemies simply by relating one of his famous homespun folksy stories, and possibly one of America's greatest ever national leaders. So, small question to open with. In your opinion, how closely does the real historical Lincoln match the popular image? That's a very small question. I think it, it pretty much does. It sounds like a, a really flippant answer to say, no, he really is all of those things. But um, he was. There's a lot of truth in that mythologized image of Lincoln as the great emancipator and the great union saver. Those are the two uh, images of Lincoln that have really kind of come down um, the most and the ones that most people grab onto. He can be all things to all people if he's the man who kept the country united, albeit through a very brutal civil war, but it doesn't fall apart. The union is restored in 1865 at the end of his presidency. 
And he's also the man who, through his actions with the Emancipation Proclamation, led to the freeing of the slaves um, and then everything subsequently from that. So, you know, those are two two legacies that no one else is ever going to really live up to because these are, you know, the Civil War is the great catastrophic moment of American history, the most important moment of American history, although I know you two as 20th centuryists might, might quibble that one. No, I would, I would agree. I, I agree. First of all, first of all, no, FDR battled both the Great Depression and World War II. I'm just leaving well, that there, but you can continue. I'll come back to FDR and Lincoln. <laughs> like, I, I think that they're actually um, kindred spirits in the same way, similar way. But, you know, Lincoln, the only, every time you have lists of great presidents, the only person who comes close to rivaling him would be Washington. And, you know, I think Lincoln is the greatest. Um, I can see why there's a case made for Washington. These two builders of the nation, Washington is president of the, you know, first United States. Lincoln is president at a time of the country's rebirth. And, those images for historians, we like to kind of find the negatives and go, oh, it can't, he can't really be this great. There's got to be sort of counterpoints to this myth. But it's, it's very hard. His story is very appealing. He comes from the frontier. He's from Kentucky originally. There's a story of the rail splitting, as you mentioned, and the log cabin image of Lincoln wielding an axe and then going off to Illinois and championing um, frontier rights as a lawyer. And then these almost mythologized at the time debates that he has in the 1850s with Stephen Douglas over the the state of where the nation's going the you know he's a particular key moment in American politics where compromise seems to be going out the window the issue of whether slavery is going to keep on enduring comes up you know he has this almost large I mean larger than life literally he is the tallest president you know larger than life image come 1860 even when he's elected and then from that everything just builds on it so there are there are multiple versions and images of Lincoln, even from the time, that have just extended to us through through history, and it's very hard to divorce that mythologized great image of the great president from from the truth. Um, and I don't actually necessarily think they should be divorced because he does, you know, there are he was a very great man in his age, um, and he, that's why he's still still so inspiring uh, to this day. Yeah, I mean, I think that the point you made there about the, you know, the fact that he's the one that has to lead the nation through the Civil War and, like, there's just nobody that's ever going to have to do that or done that before and how that that will always kind of set him apart. I mean, it kind of speaks to one of the podcasts I'd gone back and we listened to was, I think, the first one we ever did on a president, which was Teddy Roosevelt. And, you know, we sort of concluded at the end with the problem with the Roosevelt's, that, that Roosevelt's legacy is the fact that they didn't have a great challenge. Um, so for all... For all, he could have been a great president. He always be a near great because he never had to overcome anything. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, Ted, Teddy has a really complicated relationship with Lincoln because he actually witnessed the funeral, uh, the procession, which I know I think we're going to talk about later. But there's actually a, a photo that allegedly has a young Teddy Roosevelt looking out the window watching watching Lincoln's funeral procession. And I guess if you see that and then you go into politics and, you know, you, you become president, he's, he's always had that in his mind. I think he, there's a bit of Teddy that wants to be, you know, remembered. Like, I mean, look at Mount Rushmore, you know, they're, they're together. Um, whether Teddy deserves to be up there is, is open for, for debate. You know, presidents subsequently have always tried to somehow model themselves to an extent or borrow from Lincoln's image and his legacy and his politics. Um, very few have really lived up to it. I think only FDR 
has lived up to it maybe i mean you know he did get america out of the depression even before before you think about the second world war um and kennedy potentially potentially had had uh, came closest to but then comes closest in a totally different way by by also mirroring lincoln in death as much as in life yeah, I mean, the, the final thing I'm going to say before moving on is I think that the thing that very much sort of links uh, the most these most successful presidents is, presidents is how, how pragmatic they are in the face of challenges and how they don't let their ideology overrule them and, and how they've just got a very keen sense of pol- how to make the smart political decision. But in saying that, from what I understand, um, Lincoln wasn't actually particularly popular with the American people, even in, even in the North during his presidency, perhaps until the very end of, of the Civil War, or perhaps even until his death. Um, I mean, Kat, what do you think accounts for this lack of popularity? Is it just simply that he was presiding over a brutal war, um, or was the fact he was viewed by many as an incompetent leader or general of that war, or was there something else going on? I think it's it's a it's a myriad of reasons. When he comes to power in 1860, bear in mind he's not on the ticket in a lot of southern states. His election is the real final catalyst for for South Carolina's secession, and then subsequently it's the final sort of nail in the coffin for the wider secession. The South just uh, just do not like him at all. It's him, and it's also the Republican Party of which he is the president. You know, as president, is the leader of. Um, they're, they're one and the same. And that stays in the North too. Democrats, uh, Democrat support remains very strong. You see it kind of rise again, particularly in 1862 during elections that are going on. You know, that never really wanes because the Republicans are, are still a relatively new party come in 1860 and during the Civil War. They're, they're an amalgamation of, of know-nothings and Whigs and they've, you know, come from, from a whole bunch of other political streams. So the Democrats are the established party and Lincoln is this sort of young, relatively inexperienced politician and lawyer from Illinois um, who suddenly takes the presidency. If this sounds familiar, it's because it's exactly what Obama did in 2008. Um, and it's very hard out of Washington, outside of Washington to find um, through the war very pro-Lincoln supporters, or at least there's a if you just went on the primary source opinion alone, it's just that, that Lincoln is, isn't liked. I mean, there's one particular great uh, quote I found in my own research from a wife of a judge in New York, an Irish American judge who um, criticizes Lincoln. Well, it, what you see with Lincoln criticisms from Democrats is actually the man's okay. This image of honest Abe is okay, but politically he's a disaster. Um, and so this judge's wife writes that Lincoln is mentally what he is physically long and loose in the joints. He cannot gather himself up easily for an effort, but all agree he is a conscientious, honest fellow, most unfit for his high position, not realising the peril of the country, content to be president. And then you have tied into that how uh, the relationship between him and General George McClellan, who goes on to become a Democrat candidate in 1864 running against him. McClellan and Lincoln have this, I mean, whole histories have been written about their relationship about, and this is actually one of Lincoln's faults, I think, is that he leaves McClellan in his position as commander of the Army of Potomac for far too long. McClellan ponders outside Richmond and doesn't do anything. Lincoln would read military treaties. He is commander in chief. He was um, heavily into understanding war maneuvers and had his own thoughts about sort of being a general. Um, so he's not incompetent in that sense. Like he's actually very, very competent. 
but the generals sort of ignore him and McClellan ignores him particularly. And then you, you get this sort of face off between, between the two of them in 1864 and the Democrats really hoping that McClellan was going to galvanize the support that he used to have in the army from the soldiers, that this is going to be a kind of big political sway. And you, you read stuff in 1864 and think, Oh, Lincoln's got no support in the North. And he, he worried that he would lose the election. Um, but he doesn't, you know, in 1864, he wins. He has a huge support within with from the soldiering community. And essentially by voting for Lincoln, you're voting for an extension of the war. There's no sign that in November 1864, though the war is, uh, starting to to kind of wind down and it looks like victory is coming the the sort of fighting around around virginia and the uh, you know the surrounding of lee is is looking more likely um you know it's not inevitable that you know there's going to be a war finishing because they've already been through at least a couple of occasions where it looks like the war's going to finish and it hasn't so by voting in lincoln it's a it's a sign that there is a you know all this these primary sources that sort of suggest that there's democrat opposition it doesn't really bear up come the actual election yeah i almost said fascinating there um yeah it's um it's, and obviously what what follows is you know lincoln gives one of the most famous speeches of his career one of the most celebrated ones in the second inaugural address um where he's hoping to sort of you know reconcile the south to the union eventually and and then is assassinated before the dirty work of reconstruction has to be done and you know, that's always going to be left there as to, you know, what would have happened had, had Lincoln lived. Um, and, and, and I guess, you know, in terms of his legacy, that keeps the legacy much purer than it likely would have been otherwise. Um, but that's something we can only, we can only speculate on. Um, but it will stand as one of the great what-ifs in, in American history, I suppose. It, it's, it is probably, uh, it's that in Kennedy, actually, again, very similar. It's the two great what-ifs. We, we, also have a little bit more on on Lincoln in terms of there are some hints about his reconstruction policy that come out um, after his actual inauguration in March of 65. So, you know, there's a, there's a few weeks where he's talking about, you know, voting and, you know, how, how the Freedmen's Bureau is going to negotiate things in the South. And there's a sense, and this is something that um, is actually depicted in the birth of the nation in 1915 and in that most wonderfully awful film (laughs) when lincoln is assassinated the the card that comes up when news reaches the south is we've lost our friend that you know lincoln lincoln had a habit of um always being very pragmatic and thoughtful and often forgiving anybody of nearly anything. So there are lots of instances in the war where he would often pardon soldiers who were due for court-martial. Um, he was kind of known for, for being quite you know, sympathetic and kind, and that ex- extended to this idea that he might have treated the South, uh, or white, white planters in particular, more fairly than the radical Republicans who followed him. Um, and that's what the birth of the nation is is kind of capturing in that one particular scene. And so we mentioned there the you know the, the, the assassination uh, you know of Abraham Lincoln you know on you know Good Friday, April eighteen sixty five at Ford's Theatre. He's assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. You know anyone who studied American history knows the the basics of that that story, and it's entered you know popular culture in so many ways. There's been you know comedy skits about it, songs about it. I remember the you know the American. Uh, you know, comedian Bob Newhart 
does this great one-sided monologue of the discussion between Lincoln and his advertising agent about, you know, and he ends up recommending that he goes to the theatre and taking a night off and all these kind of things. So this becomes this moment where Lincoln, the great war leader, the great emancipator, dies. But, I mean, it seems that you know many in the North, from the, the moment of Lincoln's assassination and his death, he starts to become more embraced by by the North. You know, his reputation starts soaring. And because, I mean, because the assassination takes place on Good Friday, you start seeing these comparisons between Lincoln and Jesus. And he becomes known as as Father Abraham. And is this, you know, just this a kind of typical process of the martyring and martyrdom of a prominent, you know, political and cultural figure? Or is there is there more, do you see there being more to it than that? Um yeah, so the image of Father Abraham is actually one that uh, is present while Lincoln's alive. Um, there's an 1862 song called We Are Coming, Father Abraham, which was written in response to Lincoln uh, calling for more troops. And that's very popular throughout the war. There are multiple versions that uh, exist, and then um, they change the number of volunteers who are in it. He's this this fatherly figure of the nation that um, is going to kind of bring bring peace and, and strong leadership. Then then he is assassinated on Good Friday. Um, as you mentioned, Malcolm, it's it's a you know strange coincidence that it happens to be, you know, this this sacrifices throughout the war, there are continual references to giving up blood for the nation and Christ-like devotions and, you know, these this this higher ideal of heroism and a martyrdom and in a, in a, you were talking uh, in the last podcast about the kind of role of religion and, and how that played into it. Um, but then you have the ultimate sacrifice of Lincoln sort of giving up everything, sort of, you know, giving up his life for the nation, which, which just, I think actually adds an extra level um, to, I think he'd have always been martyred um, and mourned to a, an incredibly high, almost untouchable extent. But the fact that it happens to be on good Friday just adds an extra, extra, um, sort of level of of devotion and untouchableness uh, to the whole Christ-like hero. Um, and one, I mean, once that happens, I think there's, there's no going back. And you know, that's, you know, it, Edwin Stanton, his secretary, secretary of war says that famously says he belongs to the ages at the moment he dies. Um, and I think that, that from that, it just really does solidify it. Yeah, poor James Garfield and William McKinley. They never got never got shot on Good Friday and never got to be Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I would imagine, you know, given the kind of this evolving kind of image of Lincoln and his his you know martyr's death, and I think I could imagine his his funeral uh, is going to be something of an event uh, in in American politics and in American culture and for the American people, particularly in the in the North. So, so Mark, would you, would you care to give us an outline of, I mean, what was Lincoln's funeral actually like? Yeah, very much lived up to the stereotype. I always remember hearing about America when I was a kid, that everything America is just bigger. Um, <laughs> because I mean, like Lincoln's funeral is, it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, like they, they take his open casket and they retrace his, his funeral route. It, it basically retraced his original journey as president-elect when he came from Springfield in Illinois or the, to Washington. So they retraced that route and went through various cities. Um, there was 150,000 people gathered in Springfield for the funeral. About a third of the entire U.S. population uh, participated in some kind of memorial commemoration for Lincoln. Um, and it, it was kind of a strange one as well, because so they would, they would take the open casket with Lincoln and bammed, 
and they would leave it open for a day. And if you went in the morning, apparently Lincoln looked quite bonny. <laughs> but if you got there by night, then, <laughs> then not so much. And they had to, to keep doing the... They had a guy following him around doing the embalming process over and over again. Um, his funeral nationwide was actually segregated. Um, although in, at the end, at the very end in Springfield, he was laid to rest by two African-American ministers. And as with all these things, this was reenacted in Springfield in 2015 uh, on on the anniversary. So yeah, it was kind of a big deal. Yeah, the only the only <clears throat> vague comparison, but nowhere near on the same scale, is again it's JFK's funeral in in November of eighteen six of nineteen sixty three. You know, almost a hundred years later, the funeral <clears throat> of Lincoln still seems to have this just historical and cultural pull. I mean, it's artifacts from the, from the funeral train uh, and the casket keep cropping up everywhere. And there's actually um, two strands of one of the tossels that's on the, the big um, sort of funeral pyre thing that's built around it. They they're in the British library. Somebody for some reason ended up donating them to the British library. And then they've got exact same copies of those in, in the building across from Ford's theater or the new Ford's theater in DC. There's a, there's a continual um, fascination with that funeral, which is interesting because it's now completely pretty much out of uh, memory. So it remains now kind of a museum piece, but still very important to Lincoln's entire legacy. Yeah, and I mean, also the other connection with with JFK's funeral is that the, the day after, you know, Kennedy's assassination, you know, Jackie Kennedy, you know, says to I think it's Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the historian who's one of the organisers of the, the the entire affair, that she deliberately wants JFK laid out in exactly the same way as Abraham Lincoln was. You know, so she's right in the in the moment of the kind of the, you know the greatest grief she's ever going to experience. She's harking back deliberately to to Lincoln and to his funeral, and it's fascinating the way he's he's almost commemorated in that way at mm. the death of another president. Yeah, I mean, so moving along then, um, so obviously Lincoln, uh, above all else, was the very much the commander in chief. Um, while while he was for almost the entirety of of his presidency, um, so in the sort of fifty years that followed, Malcolm, like is, is Lincoln's image used at all to sort of justify military interventions? And I'm thinking specifically here, kind of the you know the the so called imperial adventures in the the sort of Spanish American War or or even World War One. Well, I mean, there's there's some interesting stuff goes on. I think in some ways it's the way kind of Lincoln's the ideals that are ascribed to Lincoln are used by other key figures in American history, other presidents, to try and justify these things. So we discussed with, with Rachel in the last episode about the idea of that, you know, is the the American Civil War the first war of humanitarian intervention? When we get to 1898 and the Spanish-American War, that is portrayed in some ways as a humanitarian war of intervention to, to free the oppressed Cubans and, and Filipinos and, and all that kind of thing. And Lincoln's ideals of, you know, the idea that of democracy, of you know freedom of liberty, all these kind of things that that Lincoln espoused during the Civil War, become deployed by other presidents uh, like McKinley, and there's also the religious connection, you know there is there as well. There's the kind of idea of this kind of you know Christianizing mission and all that kind of thing. I mean Lincoln's religion is particularly complex and interesting. We touched upon that week, so there's kind of a sense there that that Lincoln is is deployed or the, the ideals that are ascribed to Lincoln are deployed. 
in the service of American involvement uh, overseas. You see it in uh, in cartoons in the lead up to American involvement in World War One, where you get the 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 figure of Uncle Sam, but you also get a very Link, you know Link, Lincoln himself, but also a very Lincolnian Uncle Sam as well. You know, as kind of you know, should the U.S. be involved? And then the, the positioning of you know comparisons between say Wilson and Lincoln as war leaders. You know, reluctant. You know, scholarly, thoughtful men who have reluctantly to lead their nation into the carnage of war in order for the, you know, these higher ideals. And then Wilson does this all this stuff about making the world safe for democracy and all that kind of thing. And harking back to these Lincolnian democratic ideals that you know that he, that he allegedly espoused all the time during the during the Civil War. So his the, the the way that he's deployed and the way that his his ideals or kind of alleged ideals are deployed is kind of interesting. Um, so also one of the things that you see with cartoons uh, that came out almost 100 years ago over the last few weeks when Wilson goes to Congress and talks about, uh, you know, putting the vote about going to war and then actually when the US enters the war 100 years ago the other day, you see cartoons of Wilson seated, seated surrounded by the other great war presidents. So you have... McKinley, you've got Washington, you have Madison, you have Polk, and then you've got Lincoln, who's, uh, there's one particular one I've seen who's literally right over um, the shoulder of Wilson. And it's part of it, it's that, you know, this reluctance of going into war, these great tests, but also these are great war presidents. And, and actually, this all worked out well for the nation. Um, so is Wilson kind of up to that that same image? I think it's you know, fascinating. I know exactly the one of the cartoons you're referring to, and it's interesting the kind of the on the expressions and the faces of the assembled presidents, particularly Lincoln. There's this great deal of solemnity mm. about the occasion. Like this is a very you know a solemn task that they don't really want to do, but they have to, like Lincoln, go to war and all these kind of things. So yeah, I mean it's fascinating the way that and Lincoln is so prominent in yeah. that. And also, I mean, his name comes up in in foreign wars that. Or you know nothing to do with America, the Spanish Civil War uh, in the mid to late 1930s, as part of the the international brigades, these kind of foreign fighters that go to fight on the the Republican side uh, in the Spanish Civil War. There's two American brigades go and fight as part of the what's called the 15th International Brigade. One of them is the George Washington Brigade, and the other one is the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, uh, and they go and fight in Spain in 1937-38. Uh, I think it is. And they're a kind of fairly mixed bag of individuals that go and fight for often radically different reasons. Some are American communists or, you know, on various you know parts of the left wing political spectrum. Uh, others kind of come from different kind of political ideologies. There's a small uh, group of about, I think it's somewhere between 70 and 100 African-Americans go and fight uh, as part of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade because they see that as themselves doing something to fight against the kind of forces they are oppressed by back in the United States. So they're fighting against the this kind of emergent fascism in Spain and all that kind of thing, although the fascists on the nationalist side are a, a small part of uh, of that side. We won't get into the complexities of the Spanish Civil Let's War. Not. <laughs> no, uh, far too complex, and I do not know enough about it. But it is fascinating that of the, the two kind of, American military for you know groups that go over there. One is the George Washington Brigade, 
and the other one is the sorry George Washington Battalion, sorry, and the Abraham Lincoln Battalion as part of the larger Fifteenth Interna- you know, International Brigade. But you know, aside from the kind of the involvement with with other wars, I mean, there are very you know concrete representations of a, of Lincoln in America. I mean, the most kind of you know most famous of them is obviously the the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, the the gigantic tribute to the president, opened in 1922 by uh, Warren G. Harding, who, let's be charitable and say, was perhaps not quite as great a president as Lincoln. Uh, and it's it's been, a letter writer. But, well, <laughs> I'll let, yes, well, you could argue, but perhaps slightly, uh, slightly, slightly less... Uh, Considerate of financial probity, shall we, <laughs> shall we say, in his cabinet. Um, so, I mean, the, 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 since 1922, the Lincoln Memorial has been this kind of constant visual image in political and events and in cinema. One of my abiding memories, one of the earliest films I remember watching as a kid is the 19, early 1950s science fiction film, The Day the Earth Stood Still. And Klaatu, the alien visitor, uh, takes the young son of one of the people that lives in the house that he's, he's now staying in, in disguise, kind of. And one of the places they visit is the Lincoln Memorial. And Klaatu, this alien, talks about how great a man he must be to have a memorial such as this. And really, there's a eulogization of Lincoln in the middle of this science fiction film, uh, which is about peace and is about kind of the the threat of nuclear weapons and all of these kind of things. And Lincoln is brought very centrally into that. Klaatu is almost Lincolnian and Jesus-like in the same kind of way. But, Kat, you know far more about kind of the, the Lincoln Memorial. Let's turn back to that. You know, do you want to say a bit more about it? Yeah, and it, no, no pun intended here, but it really does solidify the image of Lincoln and, and the legacy of it. You know, this it's a, every time I've gone and gone to it, it amazes me actually how massive it is. It, it dwarfs everything else around it. And... You know, from the outside, it, it's a it's it's a pretty Greek Roman temple, but it's it's really inside this gigantic figure of Lincoln, who from 1922 to this day has just been staring straight down the Washington Wall at Congress. It's like he has his eye on the nation, and that's and part of the the building of it was to to commemorate him. And that you know, the statues that had come out, there've been statues of Lincoln since um since 1868 or so. That they weren't, you know, they were statement-like, but they weren't doing justice to this to this great savior and reunifier of the nation. So around the outside of it, you have the thirty-six states of the union that were in the country at the time of his death. So including the Confederate states. So again, it's that kind of visual image of, of reunification that the whole of the the whole of the country is included. It's often said um, this is slightly lazy and cliched, but it's often said that the Civil War you have the United States going from the United States is to the United States are. Lincoln is kind of um, really fundamental in in creating that. And then on the inside, you have next to him on on the two side walls, you have the Gettysburg Address, which is all about the new birth of freedom and the dedicated... I mean, the, the Gettysburg Address is 273 of the best words ever said in American history. It sums up everything that the nation is about as much as everything that the war is about and the future direction of the country. It's about this higher libertarian ideal of republicanism that then gets adopted internationally, as you've already mentioned. It's about, you know, fighting for liberty 
for all, which can be interpreted by anybody in any way, whether that includes African-Americans or not. And certainly civil rights activists certainly took that image up. And then on the other side of the wall, you have the second inaugural address, which talks about reconciliation again and, you know, bringing the country back. So it's, it's, you know, what I mentioned at the beginning about these two images of Lincoln being the great emancipator and the great union uh, savior, that's, that's what the memorial um, really exemplifies. And that's why it's become the, se- the center and the focus for so much protest uh, and, and demonstrations. They're, not dem- they're, they're using Lincoln in demonstrations. They're not demonstrating Lincoln. He's, he's an activist too, kind of in, in the shadows. Um, you, you know, the, the most famous one being, of course, Martin, uh, Mal- sorry, Martin Luther King, in 1963 using it and there's even now on the the memorial there is now an actual marker on the memorial to where he stood to give the i have a dream speech but when you look at the footage of that you can see lincoln in the background and that whole speech draws conscious connections to emancipation to the past to you know this hundred year legacy and to lincoln you know, lincoln is is being that memorial has become the focus of kind of using him as an ally for every political cause yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting how they how they first sort of established that as a as a as a venue for civil rights. It's it's very much I think it's done on purpose by by Eleanor, Eleanor Roosevelt and others in 1939 who who have the the African American singer uh, Marianne Anderson perform there um, very very consciously at the Lincoln Memorial as a, as a venue for Afri- like you know to symbolise supposedly African American advancement. Um, which I mean it does does have its issues, and we'll maybe talk a wee bit more about Lincoln and race relations uh, a bit later in the podcast. But but yeah, it is interesting that it was actually purposely uh, done in that way. Like they realised the symbolism of of setting that up and and having her perform there um, after the daughters of the American Revolution had had banned her because she was an African American from, from performing there. So and I mean, there's also kind of you know, to consider the fact that you know. Aside from these you know, very real symbols of uh, of Lincoln's legacy, that he's also kind of deployed by politicians, American politicians, since his death uh, for you know for various uses. I mean, kind of you know who we choose to remember, not remember, and how we remember them, and when we remember them can be a political decision in and of itself. I mean, I always think it's interesting. Lyndon Johnson and Mark, you know far more about this than I do. Uh, Lyndon Johnson signs the the Civil Rights Act in the President's Room of the White House, the same room where Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation, which is obviously a deeply significant and symbolic act. So it'd be good if we could discuss just for a little while how Lincoln has been used and abused by politicians. Yeah, I mean Johnson loved a, a bill signing in a in a in a somewhat a significant location. It was his go-to thing. Um, but yeah, the I mean I think the most obvious uh, use of Lincoln politically is the fact that the Republican Party calls itself the Party of Lincoln. Um, the fact that it has Lincoln Day dinners every every year. I believe it's on his birthday. I think they do the, the Lincoln Day dinners on, um, and. But but he's very much been a political figure that both sides have have wanted to claim, um, especially round about the turn of the nineteen hundreds. Lincoln seems to become less hated by the South in this sort of spirit of recon, reconciliation, um, uh, and this, so so the Democratic Party are freed up somewhat to to say nice things about Lincoln, and, and FDR very much attempts to bring Lincoln as as a. a as an ecumenical figure that could belong to the Democrats when he makes a speech in 1939. 
Um, I mean, the interesting thing is, obviously, you, you mentioned Johnson signing the Civil Rights Act. Um, from that point onwards, the Democratic Party is going to become the party that is in more in favour of, of civil rights. Um, and thus, some would claim more welcome to, to Abraham Lincoln's legacy um, I, I, in that, as we discussed, that sort of great emancipator phase. But I also think the, the reason, I, I think the more important reason as to why the Democrats perhaps the editors uh, obvious inheritors of it is the fact that, that the Republican Party at this point becomes a more southern party for the next 50 years and Lincoln while he obviously fought on behalf of the Union is very much was was belonged to an exclusively northern party um, in, in the form of the, the the Republican Party at the point when Lincoln found it um, so yeah it's it, it, it's Republicans still often claim Lincoln um, and call themselves the, the party of Lincoln, but it maybe rings a bit less true than it did than it did fifty years ago. Um, but I don't know what, what what you think about that, Cap. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, this is something that you always see in in sort of gift gift books of uh, you know political quotes and you know the comparing of the parties. There is always a page that goes, "Oh, well, you know, Lincoln's a Democrat, really." <laughs> and that, I mean, that's been going on for years. And I I actually think it, you know. LBJ, any anytime any kind of conscious reckon, you know, reference to the Emancipation Proclamation or pens or any bit of Lincoln memorabilia comes out in the White House, you know, you know, you're it's got to be something of it. It's something that's of significant importance. You're elevating it up to 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 this like high standard. But I I think actually it's FDR where where that shift to to Lincoln being a Democrat really begins. Um, there's a, a really great film. I urge listeners to watch it. It comes out. It came out in 1933, just after FDR was inaugurated, called Gabriel Over the White House, which is this allegorical um, black and white version of Dave. You know, the body swapping um, presidential comedy film. It's, there's, there's some similarities to that film, and you have a president who is um, basically FDR. That's what it, it's sort of showing up. This is what an FDR um, administration is going to be like. But the whole way through that film in the White House, there are, you know, Lincoln's ghost is haunting it. There's the bust, there are paintings, they're using the emancipation signing pen. Um, you know, anytime that proclamation pen comes out, it, you know it's important. And I think it's then how FDR conducts his presidency, you know, before, you know, in the, in the time before the Second War, he's launching this war on, on um, the, the depression. He's trying to build the country together. No, this is a this is a united project. Uh, is is straight out out of the Lincoln playbook, and I think there there are strong similarities. And it's interesting that in in culture that was being picked up in too. I mean, Gable over the White House should really be Lincoln over the White House because he's he's sort of the one haunting this FDR like president. Yeah, and the other thing as well, I think where Lincoln begins to fit the Democrat image, uh, particularly after FDR comes in and passes the New Deal and everything, is the fact that. Lincoln wasn't afraid of using government uh, to advance, uh, to sort of, to advance his agenda. I mean, he was a Whig initially and a Whig that was in favour of spending on infrastructure. That was kind of what the Whigs were all about at the time. Um, and then obviously as president, Lincoln, you know, use, has the Homestead Act, which is a huge, big involvement of government in settling the West and, you know, suspends habeas corpus. I mean, that's an extreme example. But I mean, he, he didn't have the, he he perhaps chimes more with 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 Roosevelt and the more activist Democratic Party that emerged compared to the sort of conservative laissez-faire Republican alternative. Yeah, and he also has a 
linking that bipartisanship and bringing in experts and bringing in you know, as, as to gather in as much opinion as possible. You see that with FDR and then you see that through, um, I mean, you know, the best and brightest model is really begun with Lincoln's pragmatism of having a cabinet full of people who would have divided opinions. Like, you know, the way Kennedy conducts his diplomacy during, during the Cuban Missile Crisis is very similar to how past presidents have, have when they've reached out to as many people as possible to, you know, create a much more well-rounded pragmatism pragmatic approach to things now you can be criticized and lincoln was criticized that that that's a very slow process at slowing the executive down but if the results are are going to be so great and beneficial to the country then then you can see why they all follow that model the democrats keep following that model yeah, you just touched on one of Malcolm, malcolm's bugbears by portraying kennedy as really wise during the cuban missile crisis <laughs> It's, it's a point of complicated debate. But no, I mean, it's interesting the, kind of the way the Kennedys come into this. I mean, I kind of, I've been kind of, in the preparation for this podcast, I've been interested in looking at the way other presidents and presidential advisors have talked about Lincoln. Mark, you'll, you'll like this bit. That mm-hmm. in, in January 6, 1963, Bobby Kennedy delivers a speech at the opening of this big U.S. National Archives exhibition that marks the centenary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And uh, the historian and Kennedy intimate, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., uh, was, was there. And someone comments to him, he records in his journals, that the speech demonstrated that Bobby would be the next president and that Lyndon Johnson was on his way out. <laughs> uh, so, you know, were, and there's, there's all these ways that in which kind of presidents either compare themselves to Lincoln or are compared to Lincoln. So during the, kind of the, the Vietnam War, Walt Rostow, uh, the National Security Advisor sub- subjects Lyndon Johnson to this apparently very tedious and misconceived analogy regarding Vietnam and the American Civil War. Apart, according to Rostow, one of the worst National Security Advisors ever, uh, you know, apparently LBG was Lincoln and anti-war activists are the copperheads. And if, if Johnson just sticks it out, the military momentum is with him and everything's going to be fine in a few months with the, the Vietnam War. Uh, and again, Arthur Schlesinger records that he thinks Rostow is a bit of an idiot, <laughs> which, is, which is quite good. And then uh, the historian and journalist Alan Nevins, who wrote quite extensively about the, the Civil War, he writes this letter to Johnson towards the end of Johnson's presidency when he said, I can't take any more because, you know, because of Vietnam. And again, he compares LBJ to Lincoln and Johnson apparently finds this incredibly comforting in the kind of dark days of the end of his presidency. <laughs> he keeps the letter in his pocket and takes it out and reads it to comfort himself. <laughs> and, uh, well, he was, he was the second tallest president. He was very close to Lincoln he was, that he way. Was, he was very, very close. <laughs> I enjoyed that so much that I don't want you to stop at Johnson um, because you told me earlier that... <laughs> Apparently, Richard Nixon saw himself as a bit of a Lincolnian oh, figure. So, so there's, there's some great, great stuff. Nixon's memoirs are a fascinating volume that you could, you could, you know, beat uh, a bull to death with. They're vast. There's this giant volume of, of Nixon's, you know, self-regarding, uh, just, just justifying him in the court of history, uh, kind of memoirs. So he recalls early on in these. This is, is great that on his thirteenth birthday in 1926, his uh, his grandmother gave him a framed picture of Lincoln as a president, and it remained a treasured possession throughout his life. You know, and then there's a there's a brilliant piece in. Uh, in 1972, 
So and this is the point we're saying he practically compares himself with Lincoln. And this is in the kind of the era of detente and trying to be the great foreign policy president and actually having great achievements. Uh, and he practically compares himself to Lincoln. He's in conversation about Mao Zedong with the French philosopher André Malraux. And Lincoln comments that, I remarked that this kind of mystique was present in many great men. People who knew Lincoln said they always felt he was looking beyond the horizon, as if there were a space between the earth and the sky where his gaze was focused. On the day of his assassination, he had told his cabinet a dream he had the night before. He had seemed to be in some singularly indescribable vessel, moving with great rapidity towards an indefinite shore. And, Link, and Nixon apparently said to, to Malraux, we don't know where that, where or what the shore is, but we must avoid the shoals in trying to reach it. And you can just see Nixon trying to compare himself with Lincoln here. And then poor old Jerry Ford, you know, his great statement on becoming president, his statement was, you know, I'm a Ford, not a Lincoln. And he's, like, he's deliberately not being Lincoln. He's the most honest president. I, I love that. Poor old Jerry Ford, he really wasn't a Lincoln. <laughs> speaking of foreign policy and nixon's trip to china and the cuban missile crisis and everything that kind of provides a good segue to ask how, how is lincoln used i mean you mentioned how he was used to justify sort of wars earlier in the century um how is his legacy used during the cold war well i mean it's quite used in quite diverse ways i won't go into much much detail detail on this uh, but i mean it is fascinating so george kennan who's arguably more than anyone the architect of America's Cold War foreign policy from the very earliest days. You know, he reflects actually on, on Lincoln's legacy. And he actually talks about the, the way that he regretted at times the way Lincoln had kept the nation together. There's always a tinge of racism in here that he thought it would have been better off without the Latin American fringe of California, Texas, and Florida. And he also commented that he thought JFK reminded him of Lincoln Although he also thought that he reminded him of Charles Lindbergh, who was a slightly <laughs> less appealing character, I would argue, uh, given his liking for mm, perhaps the more extreme variants of right-wing politics. Uh, but the Gettysburg Address, actually the one area where you know, we can see uh, Lincoln really coming into the Cold War is the use of the, you know, as Kat talked about, this great proclamation of kind of democratic rights and liberties and all these kind of things. The Gettysburg Address is frequently deployed uh, as a tool to kind of broadcast the seeming U.S. commitment to racial justice and convince these kind of uncommitted and kind of decolonizing nations, particularly in Africa and Asia, uh, to side with the United States against their enemies, the Soviet Union. Uh, so, I mean, quite a few notable figures like uh, Dean Rusk, the Secretary of State, and Lyndon Johnson, you know, use the speech quite you know, frequently in, these, in this context, in the battle of ideologies with the Soviet Union. And what they thought Lincoln meant, and this is the interesting point, they use it as a point to say that Lincoln was talking about racial equality. And this is a, obviously a distinct, appeal, a direct appeal to the decolonizing nations, particularly of Africa and Asia, and trying to overcome the challenges that America faces in the way the Soviet Union is propagandizing the civil rights issue uh, in America. So it's this kind of political tool for you know, domestic and, and foreign consumption. And then we see it again in you know, concrete symbols of Lincoln that you can touch in the Cold War. The USS Abraham Lincoln is a George Washington-class nuclear ballistic missile submarine. 
designed some mixed presidential metaphors. <laughs> designed to lurk under the oceans and potentially destroy Soviet cities. And then when that is decommissioned, you see uh, the Nimitz-class aircraft carrier, the USS Abraham Lincoln, uh, is you know is is launched in the 1980s. I, I think it is, and there is a very concrete image, you know, symbol of American power projection in America's presence. Is this the one of uh, the Bush mission accomplished speech? It is. When when Bush delivers his 2003 mission accomplished speech at what he thinks is the conclusion of the Iraq war, it's on the deck of the USS Abraham Lincoln. Yep. There's also the complex issue of, and we touched on it there and kind of the, when I was talking about kind of the Cold War and the way the Gettysburg Address is used to try and make appeals to decolonizing nations, the complex issue of Lincoln and race. So, I mean, Lincoln's role in working for emancipation and his, his somewhat kinder tone towards African-Americans has seemingly not, he's not really ensured him a universal appreciation from later generations of African-Americans. And I'd, I'd be interested to know what's the, what's been the general view of Lincoln on matters of race from uh, from African Americans. Yeah, I mean, I think as you said before the the nineteen fifties, I think there was almost universal sort of, if not a, a appreciation, then general viewed positively. But no, I mean, especially in the few generations after the Civil War, the African Americans many had had Lincoln's picture. Um, on the wall, indeed, uh, the the sort of famous quote that that, that Paddy mentioned in a previous podcast when the African Americans begin to vote for the Democrats rather than Republicans, and the the the, the newspaper says, you know, turn Lincoln's picture to the wall. Um, that that debt has been paid. It tells you that there was a picture there in the first place, and that's that's pretty significant. But from the nineteen fifties and sixties onwards, you start to get a wee bit of a dichotomy emerging um, between those who still believed that Lincoln was, you know, the great emancipated and should be celebrated and others notably Malcolm X uh, for example who who argued that Lincoln was actually a white supremacist Um, and I think he said that no man had done more to trick Negroes than any other man in history and I mean that, that that just sort of that feeds in in many ways to to how Malcolm X often often viewed the world. Anyway, uh, I mean you know he saw LBJ in a, in a sort of similar light, um, even at the same time as LBJ was passing the, the Civil Rights Act or contributing to it. Um, but but also that it's sort of been uh, Barry Schwartz in one of his books on, on Lincoln's legacy sort of persuasively says that Lincoln's reputation as a whole had started to go into decline from the 1950s uh, onwards, going from being revered to being respected. And this is partially because people begin abusing, uh, you know, we've used that word earlier, his, his, his reputation. Um, you know, during the 50s and 60s, conservatives misquoted him in support of segregation. Um, academics who were becoming more sceptical, uh, we've often talked about the 1960s academics becoming more sceptical about America in general, often ascribed to Lincoln's views about race. They didn't actually hold, um, but they were just sort of being uh, looking for anything to criticise. Um, but this has maybe, you know, reversed itself in the past few years. You know, for example, with Am- Obama's replacing Churchill's bust in the White House uh, with Lincoln's um, and his sort of use of the Lincoln Bible and the fact that everybody knew he was reading uh, Doris Kearns book, Goodwin's book, Team of Rivals, during the, the transition phase in 2008, 2009. Um, so I think there's, there's been a slight sort of revival and that's gone on partially because of that. 
Yeah, and I think there's been a, a greater understanding of you of not taking Lincoln out of you have to contextualize Lincoln with everything. So his issues on what he says about race and emancipation and abolition, you know, from 1858 through through his presidency, you see it less taken out of context now because you know he's somebody who definitely changed his opinions over time about all of that, and that's sort of trickled down now into beyond just the academic kind of understanding of Lincoln is, you know, this is someone who thought through things and that actually what he came up with at the time was always going to be quite gradual. And, and the emancipation, you know, as the person who enacted the emancipation proclamation, which is entirely really his thing that, you know, now is, is kind of consciously remembered. Obama and Lincoln is a, is an interesting um, connection because they're very similar in, in many ways other than just the kind of the historical symbology of, of the Obama presidency, you have an Illinois lawyer who's not massively experienced in politics before taking the office. Um, and there are, you know, Lincoln appeared sim- a, a lot in kind of symbolic references and hints of references. So, you know, there are photos of him in the, in the Oval Office looking at the famous um, painting of Lincoln. And uh, he had the bust very prominently next to the bust of MLK. So, you know, these two, this, you know, it's looking back 50 years and then looking back 150 years. I actually remember at the time of the first inaugural, there were some comments made about the speech that actually there wasn't as many conscious references to Lincoln as maybe some would have expected that he, Obama sometimes downplayed the Lincoln connections and focused on civil rights connections instead. Um, which is interesting, um, but Lincoln's always kind of been. You can't you can't help but think of Lincoln when you when you with Obama. So it'll be interesting to see. Maybe one day, if anyone's listening, could write scholarship on this um, the connections between Obama and Lincoln because I think that would be quite interesting. And Team of Rivals, as you mentioned, is is sort of the book. Um, although it came out before Obama became president, it's the book on how to be bipartisan and and, and how to form pragmatic government. Um, and cabinets in the mold of Lincoln, because that's what the entirely the book is about. Mm-hmm. And just, I mean, to conclude, I suppose we should kind of mention, and we've already talked about it briefly in various other parts of this episode, the way that Lincoln has been uh, portrayed in, in popular culture. And I mean, are there particularly good films about Lincoln that portray Lincoln? I know there's, we're going to talk about ones that are bad films about Lincoln, but that portray Lincoln in a particularly good way. Well, there is Lincoln, um, you know, the 2012 film of him, which is based on, on Team of Rivals, the book. I mean, it's, it's a fairly accurate portrayal in, in its, you know, it, him telling the story, you know, everything's a metaphorical story that you've got to get through 20 minutes of, of an explanation or even longer. Sometimes Lincoln could go on forever before he made his point. Um, you know, that, that film goes on for far too long. It's a great film, um, but it's, it's a very, Maybe it's too truthful as to what Lincoln was really like, which is, you know, that's not necessarily what people want to see in the cinema. It's not Lincoln, the action hero. It's not Lincoln, the vampire hunter, um, <laughs> which is an interesting one. It's, that's a surprisingly good film, but, you know, it's Lincoln, actually the man of action. Um, and when you do see him in films, it's actually always the memorial that, that you see the most. It's Lincoln... You know, this is a spoiler alert for the second night at the museum film, but Lincoln gets up off the chair and gets involved in the in sorting that the end of that film out. <laughs> uh, you know, he's the, sort of the peaceful um, reconciler once again. That image of you know this authoritarian, fatherly figure. Um, he, you know, it's any time you see the memorial, even if you're seeing it from the outside, you know it's it's Lincoln in the chair watching. So you see him prop, uh, crop up in every kind of political th- thriller 
through the 70s and 80s. But yeah, the, the Lincoln movie, I, the first time I saw it, I thought it was really, really boring. Um, and then then I rewatched it. And actually, I, I think I think it does, like, like, like you've noted, and I think we discussed it before, you know, it maybe plays on that sort of what was going on with the Obama presidency in that time. And if only you had a figure like Lincoln that could have got things sorted and passed and brought everyone together. Um, but I think there is it is a bit hagiographic. Um, although I suppose we discussed at the start of this podcast that maybe you can't do an even portrait of Lincoln because he was just so damn swell. Well, and we've not we've not even mentioned yet the best cinematic portrayal of Abraham Lincoln in best use. I, of course, am referring to his appearance in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where he encourages everyone to be excellent to each other, which strikes me as actually quite reasonably Lincolnian. <laughs> That's very true. That's a that's a excellent uh, reference. I think it's interesting also in um, two movies that are, are, are interesting, White House Down and Olympus Has Fallen, that the Lincoln Memorial isn't touched in either of them. Like the rest of DC is destroyed. The White House <laughs> is destroyed, but Lincoln isn't. Actually, even in the, again, I don't want to spoil the film, but in um, White House Down, I think it is, either one of them, it actually kind of plays a prominent bit at the end. I don't think anything can spoil the film more than what the director and the actors did in those films. That's true. Um, but it's, it is interesting that, that, you know, destroying the Washington Monument and the White House, you know, that's going to have an immediate guttural effect on, on anyone watching it. But but not touching Lincoln is a... I don't know what that says culturally. It, it kind of almost plays actually maybe, in a, this is a sweeping generalisation, to the point now of historians actually not really going too far into an, in an uber criticism of Lincoln that, you know, there's, there's now such a, a gloss around him that he, he got, can't be touched and he can't be destroyed by people who want to blow up the white house and, um, and, and make awful films. <laughs> you know, Lincoln, you need Lincoln there as a kind of, he still needs to be there as this stable, secure image of the nation, this, you know, this fatherly figure which is why I think it's been quite interesting recently to see political cartoons of Lincoln in the same way that you've seen um, political cartoons of the Statue of Liberty reacting to Trump. You know, Lincoln, there are lots of cartoons of Lincoln in, as, as the statue holding his head in his hands or literally walking off out of the chairs if he can't bear to watch what's going on. Um, you know, that's a, his, his, the, the memorial is being changed in that way. So it'll be interesting to see how that keeps, keeps going. Oh, there's one cartoon that I saw where Trump is visiting the, the Lincoln Memorial and rather Lincoln sitting with his palms down on the arms of the chair, his palms are upwards and he's giving Trump the double middle finger yeah. as well in this cartoon, which I, I kind of found kind of, kind Lincoln of interesting. Lincoln would never have done that. Lincoln would <laughs> Lincoln would, no, He would no, have been so good. Just, yeah. back, to, back to Nixon, actually, because at least... Trump doesn't quite go to saying he's as great as Lincoln. He actually has a couple of times has has gone, oh, everyone, I'm I'm one of the greatest, but Lincoln's greater. So to round things up, to con- to conclude, do you think, Kat, that that Lincoln would understand if there was a Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure time machine <laughs> and we brought Lincoln back today? Do you think he would understand the way in which he is such a such an important and an omnipresent figure in American political culture, in, in popular culture. 
no he wouldn't understand it at all i've often thought about what it'd be, be like to hop in a delorean and, and go and actually meet him and try and tell him that he is this still great figure in, in american and global life um you know lincoln has an international reach that stretches beyond uh washington and, and the united states but he he wouldn't understand that at all he was actually very very modest um and self-effacing and i mean Again, to go to the Gettysburg Address, my favorite line in that address is how he says that the world world will little note what we say here. What the world's going to remember is what happened on the battlefield and the sacrifice of all these you know, thousands and thousands of men and the cause of the Civil War. And they'll remember these high ideals. They won't remember my two minute speech. Now, at the time, actually, that speech was met, met with fairly mixed reception. Now, it is really the greatest, I think, but it's in the top five great American speeches and you know he's in the top five greatest presidents uh he would just not understand that he he you know he may have had his eyes to her horizon as, as you quoted earlier but he he wouldn't have ever sort of couched himself in that historical term for him it was everything kind of in the moment um you know his his aim was finishing the civil war and reuniting the country not a kind of his wider ideals were, were never about him. It was about the country and democracy and republicanism and all of that. So I think he'd be amazed and stunned. Um, although I reading um, the Atlantic article that you shared in 2012 about the uh, kind of cultural legacy, when it talks about how he would be first in line to watch all the films about him because he was a big lover of entertainment, he certainly would be, but I think he'd be amazed that we, we were, you know, so many books and, and so much outpourings have, have come from him. You know, they say every three days there's a book on the Civil War published, but most of those are about Lincoln. When you go to Ford's Theatre, up the four or five flights of stairs of the museum are all these books that are published on Lincoln. It's inspiring and terrifying at the same time. You know, there, there is always going to be something to say about Lincoln, but I think he, you know, for a man who liked to tell long stories, he'd be finding that great that his story's still going on, but also a little bit alarmed that no one else has really truly lived up to that standard and i think that is a fantastic place to conclude thank you so much cat for giving us the benefit of your your expertise and your your obvious enthusiasm for for lincoln and his, and his legacy uh yet again after your first appearance on the, the show it has been beguiling it has been captivating <laughs> it has not been that other word <laughs> fascinating absolutely fascinating it really has been oh thank you so thank you Kat and uh, thank you to uh, all of our listeners thank you Mark uh, for the conversation and we'll see you again in the next episode cheerio my pappy said son you're gonna drive me to drinking if you don't stop driving that hot rod Lincoln <laughs> Have you heard the story of the hot rod race with the Fords and Lincolns was setting the pace? That story is true, I'm here to say I was driving that Model A. It's got a Lincoln motor and it's really souped up. That Model A body makes it look like a pup. has got eight cylinders and uses them all. It's got overdrive, just won't stall. With a four-barrel carb and a dual exhaust With four living gears you can really get lost Got safety tubes, but I ain't scared The brakes are good, tires fair Pulled out of San Pedro late one night The moon and the stars was shining bright We was driving up great fine hill Passing cars like they was standing still
sudden in the wink of an eye.